Welcome to the Multifamily About a Slice podcast. I'm your host, Dre Evans. I've got my great co-host here, Ike Eke and Chi Nguyen. I want to thank everyone for tuning in for another great episode. If you're a first-time listener, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. And if you're a returning listener, please leave us a five-star review. It's Friday. A lot of people got Monday off. Before we introduce today's special guest, which quite a few people, I would say, do recognize him from his first book from his other conversation in the real estate space, I got to check in with my two co-hosts, Ike and Chi. What's happening? Things are going, things are going well, despite um, a bit, and we discussed this prior to pressing the record button, um, a repairing in an apartment that happens to be one that I habitate. So I'm dealing with that right now. Um, a little bit of a water issue, but you know, being in the industry and, and being able to sort of interact with the contractors, and get a really good sense of what's going on, it puts me at ease. So for those of you out there that are still renters and you know, eventually, or even owners, eventually run into these sorts of issues, your real estate knowledge will give you peace of mind while you're dealing with uh, trials and tribulations of repairs in your own home. That said, she, how you doing? I'm on the flip side of that, that equation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dealing with some repairs, a, a bad slab leak on one of my rentals. Um, uh-huh. So yeah, that's that's been gnarly. But on the on the flip side of that, and on the positive side, um, for our fund, we're closing on a one point three million dollar note, um, one note. So that's quite a bit of capital to nice. let go on one deal, which is great. And closing on a few other notes. So we're feeling feeling really good about about this week. Closing out this week for the three day weekend. So cool, I like it. Cool. Dre. Good, bro. Um, just a lot going on too in my space with um, real estate and books. So, just keeping my head to the pavement, man. Just trying to trying to hustle. So, but can't bless, man. Can't complain. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, without further ado, let me introduce our guest today. We have Rob Beardsley on the show. Uh, he is the founder of Lone Star Capital, and they've acquired over three hundred million in multifamily properties. So, quite a bit of experience. He also has a couple of books in the space and he is an expert underwriter as well as a speaker so with that said rob welcome to the show thanks for having me on absolutely absolutely so um you know i I went through your background really quickly but if you can you know fill in the holes that i left to our audience and tell tell them a little about yourself and what you do and what you do in the space yeah absolutely so five years ago my business partner and i we founded lone star capital uh, we're here based in New York City, but our business is focused exclusively on Texas workforce housing. Uh, as you mentioned, the bio we've acquired uh, at this point now over 350 million in multifamily, primarily in Houston. And this is again, you know, workforce housing, value add deals uh, where we've come in and, and done renovations and improved occupancy or management uh, in order to increase the income and value of the property. Uh, in addition to that, we also in 2021 launched our in-house property management business, Radiance Living, which is based in Houston as well. So now our portfolio is fully vertically integrated, and we've uh, also taken the first steps to bring construction in-house as well. Wow! Wow! And you know, just right off the bat, that that vertical integration is something that I think a lot of you know seasoned investors in the space, people that run syndication firms or just you know large-scale multifamily firms, always try to achieve. So if you can sort of expound on that a bit, let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, the the inclusion of property management as well as it sounds like construction into your business. Yeah, we felt that that was really important in our journey and 
<clears throat> our ability to scale. Uh, you know, we ha- we hadn't had the best experiences working with third-party management companies, uh, and we also had good experiences with third-party management companies. Uh, but with that being said, when it's your own shop, you know, you just have more control and you have more transparency. Uh, you're not, uh, I think there's just less risk. So that is really important. The other big piece about it is our ability to raise capital. Uh, really sophisticated investors prefer vertically integrated sponsors. And it's just as simple as that. And so as we were growing and building relationships, that was common feedback that we would get from bigger investors. So that further motivated us to go down that path and build uh, the team and infrastructure to vertically integrate. Interesting, interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I'd heard the 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 pros of vertical integration. I didn't, I've not until right now heard about the fact that, you know, the investors on the, on the institutional side prefer, you know, their syndicators and their operators that, to be vertically integrated, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, but setting that aside, um, you know, people always talk about the economies of scale that you receive as a vertically integrated company. Can you give us an example of, of how that's the case? If you can give us something in practice, like something that you do on a daily basis or monthly or quarterly basis that you can do better or cheaper or more efficiently having a property management arm within your company as opposed to having it with a third party. I think a good example is the fact that we have two regional managers that oversee our portfolio, uh, where in a third-party management scenario, a third-party management company might only assign one regional manager given our size of portfolio. And so we're able to have double the amount of regional managers, double the amount of oversight. And that's obviously expensive, but it gives us a better performance. All right. And it's just... Uh, we have the luxury of running the management business at a loss essentially because we're not because our main focus is the private equity side of the business lone star capital whereas a third party management company that makes their money through fee assignments right they make their money through fees they need to get as big as possible and have as little expenses as possible and that is not necessarily conducive with the best management makes sense Makes sense. I got. I have one more question on property management. Then I'll let the team take over to do something else. Um, but the question I have is, you know, for someone that's getting into um, quote unquote large multifamily, you know, anywhere from 50, 100, 200 units in a single property, what does the staff makeup look like? What would what would someone need, or how many people would somebody need to employ? to you know, vertically integrate the property management of that size building? And who are those individuals? So it depends on how high your rents are. So it can vary a little bit, but something around 600 units gets you enough revenue to where you could afford to pay a regional manager as well as uh, the accounting costs. Those are the two big costs mm-hmm. when you vertically integrate. A regional manager is a must. You know that's someone who runs the show and manages the properties, manages the on-site staff, right? Because for these large multifamily properties, the management company isn't responsible for paying for the salaries of the on-site staff. The property covers the on-site staff, but then the management company has to cover 
the corporate staff that mm-hmm. oversee and float to the different properties. So at about 600 units, you could afford to pay a regional manager and afford to pay accounting costs. You probably can't, doesn't really make sense to bring accounting in-house necessarily. So there's good outsourcing options that make it make more sense at that size. So those are the two uh, most important things that you need to nail down, especially if you have investors, because you can't just vertically integrate and then have unprofessional financials, you know, you need to have quality reporting. That's super important for, for investors. So uh, that's something that we opted to outsource as we ramped up uh, so that we could ensure the quality of our accounting and reporting for our investors. Got it. Got it. And just to drill down a bit, because I, I was actually more gearing towards the single property. So say, you know, I'm I'm out to purchase a 75 to 125 unit property and I want to build a staff for that property specifically. So in that scenario, I don't necessarily need the regional quite yet. Um, accounting may be a little more simple, so you don't have several properties in you know, a fund or anything like that. But for a specific property of that size, what does the team look like? Sure. So let's say a 200-unit property is typically going to have a property manager on site and then a, a leasing agent to, to obviously handle the leasing side of things and to free up the manager's time. And then on the maintenance side, there'll be a maintenance lead and then a maintenance technician or essentially two two maintenance people. So four people total for a 200 unit property. That's how a property will be usually staffed. Uh, If you're looking to buy a property of that size, that property will nine times out of 10 already have that staff in place. They might not be the best employees in the world, but they'll exist. And so that could be up to you whether you elect to keep them and offer them offers, hey, I'm willing to, I'm buying this property and I'm offering you a a spot to stay on at the property if you want. And that's what we do when we put a deal under contract, we'll do interviews for the the onsite personnel and we'll decide who we like, who we want to try to keep and who we don't. Uh, The the trickier part of your question is, is if you are buying, I I don't know if you were saying this is your first deal, but if it's someone's first deal, it's going to be really tough to manage it themselves because uh, the lender is just going to have a hard time approving them as the manager. So most of the time for someone buying their first property of that size, it makes more sense to partner with a third-party management firm, learn learn the you know uh get the hang of things and then uh vertically integrate. And also the, the it's kind of funny, right? The the bigger you are, the easier it is. When you're at that size like that's that's your one and only property, being vertically integrated is essentially impossible. What that means is essentially you have to do everything yourself because you just can't afford the overhead associated with a management company uh, when you don't have enough properties. Now, I love it. I think I want to pivot. um, And we know we can really delve into the second book and really talking about structuring and raising debt and equity, which is also too, uh, she knows a lot about debt um, in that side of the house. And I'm sure she'll love this. So, just kind of give us some motivations. I know you wrote the first book. Um, I'm an author myself. And so what made you go into the second book? Like why write that? And then you can just take us through some of those those strategies. What are some of those strategies that you recommend in the book in terms of people establishing those relationships and, and, and finding those equity partners to raise capital? Yeah. So while the first book was about underwriting multifamily acquisitions, the second book I, I felt was a really 
awesome addition on top of the underwriting book. Because the, in the first book, I talk about how to evaluate potential opportunities, but I don't really talk about how to go and make it happen. And so a really crucial component, right? The next step of after you identify a good deal, you need to actually structure it and put it together and go and raise the money and close it. So uh, the second book being structuring and raising debt and equity, uh, that that was just for, for me in my mind, a perfect sequel to add on to the first book uh, and, and something that I like to think about a lot and spend a lot of time on. And what's really cool is it's, it's dynamic because the market's always changing. Business plans are changing. Uh, so you can't, you could, but you know, it's not really a situation where you just set up a certain deal structure and then you set it and forget it and you don't do anything right. The, the, the market's presenting us new opportunities. So we have to think dynamically, uh, about how to set up the best deal structure for our, ourselves, the deal and our investors. Okay. And then and in the book itself, what what techniques, like what strategies do you talk about and recommend for people that are trying to attract equity partners? Sure. Yeah. So a, a lot of the later part of the book is dedicated to raising capital and building relationships with investors. And so the, the first uh, part of that is to figure out who your dream investor is and what do they look like? Because uh, it's not all the same, right? my dream investor might differ from someone else's dream investor. So being intentional about who we want to attract is really critical because if we're going to go out and put in all this effort as far as networking, creating content, being a thought leader, we want to make sure that it's resonating with our dream audience. So that's the first step is figuring out, okay, who, who do we actually want to attract? Because if you're not intentional about it, you're just kind of pushing effort out and not it's not being very focused. So so that's uh, step number one. And then number two is actually going out and doing it, and which is stuff that you know we're all doing here, right? We're creating content. We're being thought leaders. You said, Dre, you said you were an author. So those things have been tremendously valuable for myself and our business in establishing credibility and building relationships. Um, so it doesn't happen overnight, but those are those are some of the things that I get into in the book. Just jumping on that um, dream investor uh, note that you made, what is your dream investor? And then also curious, what's your dream property? If do you have a buy box that you're like, yes, that's our sweet spot. And we see that we're going to jump on it right away. Sure. So dream investor, we're actually, I, I guess I don't take my advice that well, because I feel like we have a few different dream investors and we, we like to be diverse with the different types of investors that we attract. So we work with a lot of high net worth individuals that invest kind of, you know, 50 to 500,000. But then we also have family offices and private equity firms that have invested five to $20 million with us. So I would say both are really important to our business. Um, me personally, what gets me really excited, gets me going is working with more sophisticated, larger uh, investors. Uh, it's just it, it can be more complicated, but it's more exciting, more interesting. The fees aren't as nice, right? They they are tougher negotiators, but uh, overall, I feel like I learn the most and it's most exciting to to work with bigger investors. So I would say if I were to give you one exact dream investor, it would be, you know, essentially uh, a family office or a fund that is set up that professionally invests in real estate. So it's like, I'm talking to someone who knows more than I do, has more experience than <laughs> I do. And it's like, I almost get an investor who's also an advisor for free. So that's, yeah. that's actually, that's actually very interesting. Um, you mentioned that you guys kind of, ha you have almost two separate 
uh, capital raising entities, or not entities, but strategies, one being high net worth, the other being institutional players, uh, family offices, and and the like. So I'm curious, you know, for a for a single deal, how do you tailor the pitch to, you know, adhere to both sides of that, or do you have two separate pitches for for each side? That's a great question. So we, I would say, you have it has to be a little bit different, but we don't we don't go to extreme lengths and the way that we're able to accomplish that is essentially by taking the same similar uh voice or strategy from the institutional side and we apply it to the retail side so it, you can't go the other way in my opinion right <laughs> yeah. you you can't like let's call it dumb it down and then go talk to institutional investors right um but you can bring really professional polished sophisticated maybe some stuff that's over a retail investor's head but you can largely approach it that way with retail investors. So that's kind of how how we approach it. So naturally what what happens is we attract more sophisticated retail investors, which is a good and bad thing because if you have unsophisticated investors, you can do unsophisticated deals and you can charge unsophisticated fees. So we miss out on maybe some of that kind of stuff, but uh, overall it's kind of more in alignment with our long-term goals. I like what you said there, because actually it's exactly kind of what we're running up against too on our fund side. So we have a fund, um, a regulation A plus fund and a regulation D fund for note investing. And originally we we're going for private investors also somewhere between actually $10,000 plus, uh, plus. And I think our highest investment so far is 600,000, but we've recently been looking into private equity firms, but actually mostly family offices and placement advisors. And so kind of looking at doing the same thing you guys are doing. Um, selfishly, I would love to ask for like a piece of wisdom or a slice of wisdom um, on how best to deal with family offices, because, you know, what you said earlier is what we're already doing as well on the PowerPoint side and the presentation side. We have one that's like very kind of bare bones so that it doesn't get too in the weeds. And then one that's really, really in the weeds for those placement advisors who want to know the nitty gritty details. But um, I guess, yeah, what, what's a tip that you could give um, the audience about how to work with family offices and, and capital raising? Sure. So with family offices in particular, uh, everything's relationship-based, right? But with family office, it could be considered even more so. And it could be even a longer timeline to establish a relationship. So you have to be willing to play the long game, which you know, is not much advice. It's just something that you have to deal with. Mm -hmm. But understanding that can orient you and kind of give you a, a better mindset as far as how to approach it rather than trying to just, hey, let's get a deal closed right now. Uh, with that being said, it is really important to show whoever you're talking to, whether it's family office or a private equity firm, uh, that you have consistent deal flow. So it is important to show your deals and pitch your deals uh, whenever you have them. So that way you're top of mind and you're showing that you're active. So that's really helpful and important. Um, like you mentioned, being organized and professional, you going back to the deals, you want to get those types of investors involved as early as possible. If you show it to them after it's already fully baked and under contract and whatnot, they feel less special and they feel like they have less say as far as what's going on, right? They want to be with you as early as possible. So the sweet spot is as early as you have control, that's when you should be sharing a deal. Uh, before you have control, 
not so great because then they don't have certainty that you can actually, that they could take action on the deal. Right. Um, but so that's the sweet spot, right? The earlier, the better, so long as you have control and that way. And what that means is you may not have time or want to spend the time to put together a PowerPoint, if you will, for that specific deal. Right. So what we do is we put together a data room which is just a Dropbox link, which has the financials. It has some property tax due diligence, insurance due diligence, then an offering memorandum if it's there, our underwriting model. And then what we do is a one-page investment memo. And that's kind of the the perfect document in lieu of the, the presentation. Because the reality is these sophisticated groups, they don't want to look through a 60-page PDF with a bunch of pretty pictures. That's not that's not what it what they're looking for so the one like i mean because we, we, we have raised millions and millions of dollars from just this one page memo and so my team and i we put together and it has to be one page i, ha- I make sure my team knows like we do it has to all fit on one page because we needed to keep it simple short and it has to be a clear message as far as the story of the deal and the numbers the business plan so that's kind of getting into the weeds but that's my recommendation and uh it sounds a little like you can tell that I'm passionate about it and it sounds kind of like geeky, like, oh my gosh, I'm getting excited about this data room. But we have gotten just in the last week, multiple family offices and private equity firms compliment us on how organized and how impressed they are with us and the data room. And they say, well, this is so organized. This is so institutional, right? It's a reflection upon ourselves. So it really, in my opinion, is is as important as I'm playing it up to be. And no, I love it. Yeah, this, that was a phenomenal question, Chi. And like, I'm glad that she asked that because I was actually, it's like she read my mind because I was going there too. And and really, I was going to say, I, I love that because I feel like it's not talked about much. I think that, you know, we've had a few episodes and even in the syndication space, you know it, you know, Hunter Thompson, Joe Fairless, all those cats. I know you have relationships with them too. We hear there's a lot of podcasts, there's a lot of videos, a lot of content out there where people talk about raising capital, but no one really touches on, you know, that institutional side and the in the private equity firms and, and the family offices. And so I want to take this step a little deeper, maybe a little for, further and say, okay, you know, you gave us the blueprint and detail of what they look for, right? And and thank you for answering that. But what what about establishing those relationships? How are you reaching out to family offices? Like, how do you, so let's say like, um, let's say I'm an investor and this is obviously we're in more of a, an advanced topic at this point in the show. So let's say I've got a few deals I'm on, under my belt, which every, all of us do at this point. And I want to go to an institution of size or family office. Like, how do I go about that? How do I approach that? How, who do I reach out to walk me through that? Yeah. So, First, first of all, right, we have to figure out where where do they where are they? And so there's few ways to find them. I've actually found a lot of success at conferences, but you have to go to the right conferences, and that just depends on what space you're in because you can obviously waste a lot of time and money going to conferences. Yeah. But conferences are great. LinkedIn has been good for me as well. It's kind of like hanging out in the circles of the deals that are getting done that you want to be getting done or that you are doing right. So. Uh, as just an example, if you are networked or have relationships with sponsors similar to yourself, you can look out and see what deals they're doing and who they are partnering with when they're doing those deals. So that's something I keep keep an eye on. I mean, you can even look at PR that gets 
posted online, whether it be on LinkedIn or a business journal or something, some online publication, you can see, oh, XYZ sponsor just closed this deal with this equity group partner. Okay, great. And if they just close a deal that looks similar to a deal that I do, then that could be a really good fit, right? And I might just cold email that group and say, hey, I just saw you close this deal. That's super similar to a deal I'm working on. You know, when do you have time to talk about this? And what I did there was I kept it super short. I assumed credibility and I piqued their curiosity because they're deal junkies and they it's their job to source deals. So if I'm showing if I'm sharing them a deal opportunity, it's their job to talk to me. So most of the time uh, they will not ignore me and I will have the opportunity to pitch a deal. And it's uh, when I said earlier, you know, you don't want to just pitch a deal and try to get a deal done. That's absolutely true. But you want to use a deal as a way to pique their interest and get a conversation, right? And so that's kind of my my big, uh, you know, strategy. And then to add something new to it, which I don't know what's taken me so long or why I just, you know, I like to do my little thing and not uh, inconvenience myself with in-person meetings, right? Zoom's perfectly fine. Well, no, that's not true. At the end of the day, in-person is irreplaceable. And right now we've been lately doing this campaign where we're just meeting as many people in person as possible. And it's, it's just a game changer. So I feel like I dropped the ball and wasted a lot of opportunity connecting with some uh, potential investors in the past and had a good conversation, had a good follow-up, talked the deal. And if I would have actually taken that next step to meet them in person, it would have solidified it and it would have paid off big, big time. So that's the the new, new simple realization I'm having. Yeah. yeah it, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chi. I think that everything is uh, so much better in person and even going down to like picking up the phone instead of emailing, like that makes a huge difference. I've gotten deals done just by picking up the phone and taking it off the email thread with, uh, with a million other people on it. And I just get one-to-one and say, listen, this is what's happening. Can we make this work? And people are like, yeah, let's, let's do it. And I also want to thank you for getting into the nitty gritty. I know you're like, it's getting into the weeds <laughs> too in the weeds, but honestly, like I, I love all types of podcast episodes, but I really love the ones where people can get actionable steps and actually get into deal analysis or deal or anything like that into the actual things that we can actually take away from it and and do. So I think the detail oriented organizational thing that you said with the data room, I think that's huge. And the one page memo, we're probably going to do that now. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I'll, I'll be quick. I know we got to move to the next uh, segment, but a couple of things I wanted to add, um, Rob, when you, when you mentioned, you know, you don't necessarily want to pitch a deal the first time you meet somebody, but you want to sh- present them something. A lot of times what, what I'll do is I'll, you know, take a deal that I've already done um, either went full cycle or still under management and use that as sort of a, you know, a proxy to show, okay, this is, this is what we do. This is our strategy. Um, and anything we have going forward is going to look pretty similar to this. Are you interested? That sort of thing. Um, so, so that's been helpful for me. And then when you mentioned, you know, going to the, the, the right conferences, I, I smiled because, you know, if you're looking for institutional investors, you know, bigger pockets, bigger pockets is a great conference, but they're probably not going to be there. Your local media meetup is probably a good place to meet other real estate investors. They're probably not going to be there. You you, you got to look for, you know, wealth advice conferences, you know, conferences that are geared towards family offices, multifamily offices. That's where these sorts of people sort of congregate because they're not only looking at real estate, they're looking at all sorts of other private equity deals, public market stuff. So and working with, you know, some of the investment banks out there and some of the large institutions, 
So you sort of have to rub shoulders with with that cohort if you want to, you know, grab the ear of these of these individuals. So I think that correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that's what you mean by you know attending the right conferences. One hundred percent. Yeah, it's good. I really good. Well, normally we would go into the legacy round, but I, I really feel like with this show we were touching on investor network as well as equity or whatnot. So maybe we can pivot and, and choose the legacy round and talk about more so uh, the structuring of debt. Robs, we could hit that other leg of the book. So tell us about um, some strategies that you've discussed in the second book on structuring debt, since we already talked about raising capital. Yeah, on the debt side, the book goes into kind of who the different lenders in our multifamily space are, as well as the different structures, which you've got short-term debt, long-term debt, fixed rate, floating rate, you know, and a, and a mix of those things. And What's really important to me is the fact or my opinion that debt is the largest source of risk in your deal. So it's really important to understand it and make sure that you're utilizing it appropriately. Um, you know, we've, we've all been learning that lesson as we've seen interest rates rise a lot in the last year um, or less. So, um, so yeah, so I think the really big important takeaway from the book is to make sure that you want, you have to be in alignment when it comes to your business plan your debt structure and your investors. And to just give a few examples, if you have a deal that is, for example, stabilized and it's kind of like a cash flow play, you wouldn't put a short-term bridge loan on it at high leverage. It just wouldn't, wouldn't make sense, right? A bridge loan is really for a deal that's transitional in nature that needs renovations and stuff like that. And then on the investor side of things, if your investors have the desire to, let's say, have a short-term hold. Let's say your investors only want to be in the deal for three years and they want to flip out. Well, you wouldn't put 10-year debt on the deal with really expensive prepayment penalties in that case, right? So those are disalignments. You want to make sure that you're in alignment, that that sets up the deal for most success and avoids uh, undue risk or undue costs, right? Because if you did buy a deal with long-term debt with really expensive prepayment penalty and your investors are pushing to, sh to sell, that might hurt you as far as prepayment penalties or not getting the highest price. I love that. I think we're going to see a lot of interesting times <laughs> when the market was very hot. A lot of people were using bridge debt. And so uh, it's funny that you said that because I think we, a lot of us in this space are going to see that's why I say interesting times next year to a few years in terms of a lot of these operators that close using bridge debt. And, and the way you put it is perfect where it was almost like, I just got to get a deal done. I just got to close a deal and not really looking at the the exit and what that looks like. And also too, in terms of the investors and their alignment with it. And because I think, especially starting out when you're doing your first deal, second deal, third, fourth, you know, it looks all sexy and sweet to the investors because they see all the cool pictures on the PowerPoint and I'm getting the, the nine to 10% preference that, oh yeah, I'm winning. And then they're not really tracking the true metrics behind the bridge debt and interest rates and everything, if it goes out of whack until it happens. It's interesting you said that too, because I, I have a close buddy of mine who invested in another syndication deal and they're going through struggles now too, because they were pulling money. They mismanaged the debt and equity on one property on one deal and now they're pulling that and they added a second lien on the on another deal. 
And that just, it, it, yeah, I know. And it's to, went all out of whack. Now they owe a lot of the investors money and it's a whole deal. And obviously you can take that topic alone and talk about the importance of ethics and everything else. But it, it just shows, it goes to show that ethics is, matters. Structuring your debt matters. Being conservative matters. And obviously that bleeds into your first book in terms of doing stress tests. If this happens, then this. If this happens, then this. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting time. Yeah. But we can move on to the last part of the show, the Giordano round. As you know, this is the multifamily by the slice podcast. It's named after and stems from Chicago deep dish pizza. Each slice full of fluffiness, full of goodness, leaving your mouth water. And it's Friday. They know pizza Fridays for me all day. <laughs> so it's going to be a series of questions that it's going to be rapid fire at you, Rob, between myself, I can cheat. And each one is going to leave our listeners with a mouthful of knowledge. So the first one, you're on the top of the highest mountain in the world. These are your last words before you die. What will you scream out to the world and want them to remember you, Rob? Bye. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Uh, I would have to go with. I like this. Uh, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. I like that. Nice. Number two, if there was one slice of wisdom you wish you knew when you got started or advice you could pass on to others, what would it be? I would be, I like, uh, it would be to network fast, but, but, uh, pick partners slow. Yeah. There you go. Nice. I like nice. that. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two for two so far. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. All right. Number three. And actually, I want to modify this because we did have that discussion about, you know, just talking to institutional investors versus, you know, your high net worth. So the question is, vocab, what are your three favorite or most critical real estate terms multifamily investors should know and why? But if possible, um, give a few for you know, the high net worth or, and then a few for institutional, just so under, listeners can understand the difference in, in, um, you know, in between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So on the, I mean, institutional guys, they know everything, so they don't need to hear anything from me, but I would say yield on cost is what everyone is focused on or should be focused on. So yield on cost is, uh, you know, the most comprehensive yet straightforward way to calculate your potential return uh, because IRR is more manipulatable with debt and uh, growth assumptions and exit cap rate assumptions, right? Uh, yield on cost doesn't have anything of that nature. So yeah, yield on cost is uh, is really important. And I would say, you know, we hear that word a lot from institutional investors. Oh, the yield on cost is too low. Sorry, we're not going to do the deal. Um, on the Explain to the to the audience what yield on cost is. It is your it's like a stabilized cap rate. So it takes your projected stabilized NOI. So take your future income and divides it by your purchase price plus your renovations. So it's kind of an estimate of what your cap rate will be once you finish your business plan. And that's really helpful because you don't just look at you know your new NOI versus your purchase price because it costed you money to get there, your renovation budget. So that's a, a good way to see what your potential yield is there. Uh, on the, the retail side, 
investors need to be aware of preferred returns and understand what preferred, like not all preferred returns are created equally. And so you need to understand uh, the, me the mechanics behind a preferred return and how you, you are being uh, treated in a deal structure and make sure that it's in alignment with, uh, with what you're looking for as an investor. And repeat all three for us again, Rob. First one was uh, whether you think you can or can't no, for the for the vocab. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I think there was only was there two or three. Yeah. I, I I'm not confused because I I asked for one for each class of investor, but usually we have three. Oh, okay. What what would be the the third class of investor? Uh, give us an extra one for the high net worth, since that's that's the uh, the primary audience base. I would say. I would say let's do interest only versus amortization. Nice. Right. Focusing on debt and understanding not all cash flows are created equal. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Really good. Education is critical in this business. What books, apps, or mastermind groups will you recommend listeners immerse themselves in? I like uh, The Family Office Club by Richard Wilson. Uh, we just submitted our quarterly marketing materials audit. So he's helped professionalize and make sure that we're sharp and getting to the point with our any any form of marketing collateral. So that's super helpful to have access to, to his insights on a quarterly basis at The Family Office Club. So that's a good mastermind group. As far as books, I like, uh, you know, once you read through all the basic real estate books. I don't, I don't mean basic, but you know, there's only so many real estate books that you need to read to understand the business. I think from there, it's really good to, to read uh, sales and psychology books, uh, like Pitch Anything, like Influence by Robert Cialdini, like Getting More by Professor Stuart Diamond. These are uh, skills that just show up everywhere in life. Yeah. I like it. Okay. Number five, what is the most important skill to build to be successful in real estate investing? That's, that's great. Uh, so there's, there's a few, right? Real estate's a team sport. So obviously you have to have the ability to analyze investments and, you know, structure them and be smart, but that's really nothing without the ability to inspire and tell a story and get people interested in those numbers, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, people don't, as much as I hate this, people don't really invest in numbers. They invest in people and emotions, right? We're all emotional. And on top of that, people have the chance to invest with whoever they want, right? They can go and get a very similar deal from somebody else. So they have to like you. So I would say at the end of the day, you have to be able to inspire and lead right? You need to be able to lead your team. You need to be able to inspire and lead investors. Um, yeah, those, those two are critical. Cool. Cool. All right. Bring it on home. Last question. What is the very first action you would advise a brand new investor to take to start their journey in real estate? Well, we just talked about education. So education is the best one, uh, but don't get caught up in trying to educate yourself thinking that you'll become ready through an educational process. You'll never be ready. So you have to 
get the bare minimum of education to feel comfortable and competent to throw yourself out there. So taking action and uh, being willing to essentially look stupid, which is an overreaction, but you know, putting yourself out there, being willing to say the wrong thing to learn faster, that's the best thing to do. All right. Well, thank you again. It's another episode of Multifamily About a Slice podcast. I'm your host, Dre Evans. I got the co-host at IKK and Chi Nguyen. Again, Rob, thanks again for coming on the show. We appreciate you. For all listeners out there, thanks for your valuable time. Check out the next episode and leave a five-star review. Peace.